Hello there and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we're in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And you just listened to a podcast um, on um, the, the first one on the pre-Socratics. Um, we're going through the history of uh, uh, the, the major philosophers before Socrates. And um, there's going to be a bit of a change in format. Uh, the first one was very dense, very meaty, fairly long on a relatively insignificant philosopher. Although Thales kind of kicked things off, so that was important. Um, we're going to pick up the pace significantly here. Um, I had grand ambitions for how much time I would have to podcast. Um, and the reality of school and uh, doing... Uh, well, the reality of being involved in a fairly time-consuming ministry and just doing school on the side means that I didn't have time to do podcasting throughout the semester. Now the semester is done, and I have just a few weeks before we take off on a big summer uh, fundraising tour to uh, for our ministry. So I would really love to bang out these podcasts and then move on to other things. I'd actually like to think about writing a book this summer. So that's the next thing on the radar. Um... So we had a look at the first couple pre-Socratics. Um, I don't have time right now to go back and listen to that and figure out where I left off. But in my notes here, I believe we talked about um, Thales, and then uh, we talked about uh, Anaximander and Anaximenes. Uh, and we talked about how they're looking for the one principle that organizes everything. And they're not looking for a god to um, be the answer to their their quest. They're looking for some sort of a naturalistic explanation. And this kind of sets them apart from religion. And as we're going to see in the podcast on religion and philosophy or or, um, theology versus philosophy, um, this is going to eventually lead towards tensions, uh, which are still ongoing today. Um... And so the one thing that uh, Thales thought everything was water, and Aximander and Aximander thought, um, what did he think? He thought that it was going to be something more fundamental than the four elements that they could see, and Anaximenes thought that it was air, and he said, you notice how um, when you blow and you hold your hand in front of, of your mouth and you blow, it's cold. But when you open your mouth and let the air out slowly, it's hot. And so he said, this is how you know air, if it's compressed, can be hot. And if it's fast, it can be cold. Uh, and so he was kind of searching for a way to unite everything. Really interesting group of people that comes along now, which we're not going to spend tons of time on, is the Pythagoreans. And you've heard of the Pythagoreans because of the Pythagorean theorem. I'm sorry if I covered this in the previous podcast. I don't think I have. Um, But these were guys that it was basically a religious movement based on science. Um, So we Christians in debates often accuse science or or atheists of being almost a religion. Uh, The Pythagoreans literally were a religion um, based on math and based on numbers. And they actually thought that everything was numbers. Um, not that everything could be enumerated, one tree, two tree, three trees, but everything is numbers. 
and uh, they had ways of drawing numbers in pebbles on the sand, um, which is actually where we get the word calculus from, because the Greek word for stone is is calculus. Um, and they noticed that if you if you put stones in a certain shape, then their odd numbers or even numbers, and they notice the triangles and, and that a triangle makes 10. And this was very significant for them. They discovered, you know, the um, Pythagorean theorem, something about right angles, and I totally forget. It's been a long time since math. Um, interesting note is that when, um, uh, I believe, I'm almost certain it was uh, Newton, um, that I'm thinking of, he kind of rediscovered the Pythagoreans, and he kind of had this religious conversion almost back to this ancient, I mean, he saw it through the lens of Christianity, um, but interesting, he had this, uh, Newton is a really interesting guy to study, like, his own inner workings, he was little bit off his rocker but in a genius sort of a way but he too kind of saw the whole world as numbers and as kind of this religious element to the world being orderly and, and numbered anyways that's about all we're going to say about the Pythagoreans other than that uh, it really brought math to the forefront in in all this I mentioned they were religious um there were certain taboos. They avoided beans. They avoided getting up on the other side, the wrong side of the bed. Different weird things like that. Um, and they kind of thought that focusing on math and focusing on philosophy would kind of help them ascend, um, help purify their spirits, or something like that. Um, then we get on to. Um, okay, I was going to tell you at the beginning of this. Um, my teacher at the end of the class gave us, uh, there's going to be a, um, an exam with three essay questions. Um, well, actually two. He was going to, there were going to be three and we could pick two. I misread it and I answered all three. <laughs> Classic, uh, mistake there. I haven't written an exam in a really long time. But, uh, in preparation for that, he gave us ten questions and he said, the questions are going to be out of these ten. So that... I, you know, obviously I researched and I studied out those 10 questions, and those are going to be the foundation of this this podcast series. We're going to look at these 10. Did I just say that? I'm not sure. It's late. Um, so the essay question was, what did Heraclides and Parmenides contribute to philosophy? So after uh, the Pythagoreans, we get to Heraclides. I'm not entirely sure if I'm pronouncing that right. H-E-R-A-C-L. I-T-E-S. Now, the um, the guys we talked about before, Thales, Anaximander, these guys were um, community leaders, uh, likely almost like kings or something like that. Um, Well-respected, at least. Uh, or certain of them were, were politicians. Um, Pythagoreans, this was a religious sect. Um, they had almost a monastic lifestyle. Heraclides was a loner. He um, seems like kind of a grumpy, broody, brooding sort of a guy. Um, he was very critical, very insulting uh, towards you know society in general, and so he seems to have lived on his own. Uh, he's known as the obscure philosopher in part because of 
he wrote he wrote kind of in riddles and in part just because um, he tended to want to be left alone or he kind of lived aside from society. Now, probably the most famous quote from him is that no one ever steps in the same river twice. And so for Heraclides, everything is changing all the time. If you think of a river, you walk down the river, you step in it, you get out, you step in it again. Well, the water is all different. The sand is different. Everything is different. Everything is changing for Heraclides. And this is important because... um, As, as philosophers are trying to find the, the principle of the one, the one thing that binds everything together, that explains everything, he said change itself is what binds everything together. And um, that's why he picked fire. Now, fire was one of the four elements. You have water, earth, air, and fire, or wind and fire. Um, so he did pick one of the four elements. But the way that he explained that was to say everything is changing. Everything is in flux. And fire transforms things. You, you have a log. It burns. It turns into smoke. So you have you know earth and water in their thinking. And it changes into air. And so fire is, is changing things. Everything is changing. And uh, he had a very complex way of explaining all this. Um, but everything is running through these cycles. Um, he said it's the same. The path up is the same as the path down. That ultimately um, these cycles will come back around. And stuff that turns into air will turn back into earth. Um, and um, he saw unity basically. Like how, what is the one thing that explains how everything works, it's change through basically chemical reactions, basically through fire. Um, and he started bringing in ethics. Um, maybe I shouldn't say he started bringing it in because the Pythagoreans also had some ethical uh, undergirdings in their thinking. Um, but he places strong emphasis on ethics. And he said that the logos, the word, um, binds everything together. So uh, Christians are familiar with Logos, um, the Word, because of John 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, so very clearly the writer of, of John is familiar with Greek. He's familiar with Greek philosophy. And he's using a concept from Greek philosophy to explain who Jesus is, what he means to us, uh, what it means that God became man and dwelt among us. Um, and uh, I believe it was Heraclides who was the first one to say that um, there's order in the universe. Everything is changing, everything is different, but there's some intangible order. Everything ties back to this logos, this word. Logos is just um, the Greek word for for word, literally word. Um, But it was kind of this mysterious living entity, kind of like a god or like a, the mind of a god that is organizing everything that is um, making sense of everything and so for him ethics makes sense too it, it makes sense to be a good person to do good things for your neighbors because the logos is there there is some order there is 
a sense of, of right and wrong, of, of a law, if you will. Now, the main contribution of most of these pre-Socratics is that they'll have some influence on Plato. Basically, Plato is so important that um, just to have some influence on him gives you a seat. It gives you some significance. We probably wouldn't be reading about Heraclides if um, if Plato had have popped up somewhere else in the world, or or maybe. Um, anyways, we Heraclides is important because Plato got an idea from him, and the main idea he got was that that of becoming. That if you can think of. Think of fire burning away, burning, burning, burning. What is fire? Fire in itself is a transition. It's something that is becoming something else. It's it's wood and and oxygen. Actually, the vapors from wood uh, that are combining with oxygen that are becoming, you know, hot vapors and and carbon dioxide and, and water. They're becoming something else. And so um, this idea of becoming is going to become very, very important for Plato. And we'll get to that really soon. Um, then we get on to... We get on to Parmenides. Um, and Parmenides, similar to Thales, um, there were people that kind of came after him. And so we talk about the... Um, the school of Parmenides, which is referred to as the Eleatic school. Um, and so Parmenides kind of is the opposite from Heraclides in that he said nothing changes. In fact, it's impossible for anything to change. You say, whoa, but what's going on with that? That's weird. And he had a very simple way of explaining it. He said, there's either being or there's non-being. And he was the first one to really come up with being as a concept and being itself, the idea of existence, of being, is going to become a huge concept uh, in the world of philosophy. And Parmenides was the first one to really develop that concept. And he said, look, being, um, there is being, there are things that exist, and there's non-being, things that don't exist. I exist, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> uh, no, we haven't got to um, to Descartes yet, so I still know that I exist. Um, and then there's things that don't exist. There's, there's unicorns and, and the flying spaghetti monster. Um, so being has... It, everything that exists is being, okay? Where can it come from? It has to come either from itself, which is um, which is self-contradictory, or it comes from non-being. Well, being can't come from non-being because nothing comes from nothing. Where can being move to? Well, being can either move within itself. Well, that's contradictory because being is itself. It, it can't move within itself. Or it can move towards non-being, but being can't pass out of existence. It can change form, but it can't pass out of existence. That's absurd. And so um, there's there's nowhere physically for being to move. It can't 
move within itself, and it can't move from being from non-being into being, and it can't pass out of existence. And so being is kind of stuck. Um, it can't move, so to speak. So, similarly to Heraclides and to the other philosophers that we've looked at so far as well, um, they're going to be, they're going to, um, I'm going to use a, a big term on you, a realist, um, sorry, an idealist. Um, nowadays we talk about idealists that uh, say concepts are trump reality. The concept that I have in my mind of how reality actually is is more important than what my sense is, what my what I see in front of me. For example, we're all idealists in the sense that we believe in atoms and molecules and stuff like that, even though I've never seen an atom. You've never seen an atom, unless you're lucky enough to have looked through an electron magnoscope, um, magnifying doohickey, whatever they're called. Um, and so... Um, these are idealists before there really was idealism in the sense that they say Heraclides is saying look you, it might seem as though things don't change it might seem as though that mountain has been there forever but really it's changing everything is changing it might be changing really slowly but everything is changing and Parmenides in the same way is saying um the bigger reality is more true than what you see. Actually, nothing is changing. Nothing is different. It might look like we're moving around. It might look like the world is different. But actually, nothing is different. Everything is completely being. And being cannot move. It cannot change. If being changes, then it's no longer being. Because the only way for being to change is to pass out of existence or to come into existence. Both of those are impossible. Um, so, Parmenides is um, more famous for his disciple Zeno, and Zeno came up with uh, certain uh, paradoxes that kind of illustrate um, Parmenides, and actually have baffled people for uh, like 2,400 years. Um, in uh, reading Copleston, he said, uh, some people say, oh, no, it wasn't Copleston. It was one of the um, the podcasts I listened to that said that um, some people say it wasn't until we invented the infinitesimal calculus that we were able to answer some of Zeno's objections. I don't actually know what the infinitesimal calculus is, but it sounds very complicated. Um, and then he followed it up by saying, and some people say, even with that, we haven't been able to answer some of Zeno's uh, paradoxes. Um, and uh, Copleston makes it clear that Zeno isn't just trying to um, trick people and show how smart he is. Certainly he did show that he was very intelligent. Um, but his point was to show that his master, because he was a disciple of, of um, he was part of the Eleatic school, he was a disciple of Parmenides, and he was trying to show that his teacher um, was correct in saying that nothing can change, everything is static. Uh, and he proposed, I think, about 30 of these um, these paradoxes, but the three that are really popular and fairly easy to explain, some of them are really difficult to understand. Some of them even, as I'm reading Copleston, he's like, yeah, there's debate, like nobody really knows what he's talking about. Um, 
but some of them are very easy to understand. For example, the tortoise and uh, the hare is the story that we know, but he told a story about uh, Achilles and the tortoise. Achilles was the hero of um, Greek legend from the, uh, the Trojan Wars. Um, he said, imagine that a turtle and this great athlete are having a race. So the turtle is a certain distance away from Achilles. No, sorry. The turtle says, I'll have a race with you. And uh, Achilles accepts the challenge. And the turtle says, the only thing I ask is that you give me a slight head start. And Achilles says, sure, go ahead. So the turtle starts off ahead, and he's maybe 10 feet ahead of Achilles before Achilles starts running. So Achilles starts running, and he runs 10 feet. Now, when Achilles runs 10 feet, the turtle isn't moving very fast, but he has moved a little bit. So he's maybe um, 2 feet past where he was when, um, when Achilles started running. So now Achilles has to run that two feet. But by that time, the turtle has already moved <clears throat> another, you know, six inches. So Achilles has to run to that next goal. But by the time he gets to that goal, the turtle has already moved a little bit further. And you see that he can never actually catch up to the turtle. It's this paradox. And we know it in real life, well, actually, we just run past him. But thinking again in idealistic terms, or in, you know, just following the philosophy where it leads you, how could you actually bridge that gap? It's paradoxical, because he always has to, as he's running to meet um, a moving target that will always be just beyond him. Similarly, uh, the dilemma of the haves. Uh, if anybody gets a chance, you should watch this old movie called IQ, um, which is this fictional movie about um, Albert Einstein and his daughter and, and how his, his genius daughter marries an ordinary mechanic. Um, sorry, spoiler, gave it away. Anyways, uh, at, at a crucial juncture in the movie, um, this mechanic is trying to court this very intelligent girl. And he says, why don't you come dance with me? And she says, I can't. And he says, what do you mean? And she says, well, haven't you heard of, of Zeno, uh, Zeno's paradox? And he said, no. And, he said, well, and she said, well, you know, I might want to dance with you, but before I get there, I have to walk halfway to you. And then I need to walk halfway again to you, and she's walking closer to him. And then I have to go halfway again, and then halfway again, and halfway again. And you realize I'll never get there. And, of course, in the movie, he says... He just kind of leans forward and grabs her and says, well, how did that happen? And she's like, I don't know. Must be love, whatever. Um, humorous little scene. But it's a serious dilemma. How do you actually get from here to there if in order to get from here to there, first I have to go halfway there? Well, then again, I have to go another halfway. And then I have to go another halfway, another halfway, another halfway. Those halves never stop. Um, there's an infinite distance between me and you. So the main thing that uh, Plato, again, uh, Parmenides is important because of his influence on Plato. The main thing that Plato gets from Parmenides is his idea of being, the idea of essence, and the idea that being doesn't just pop into existence uh, and, and blink out of existence. 
um, in the way that perhaps religious people or, I don't know, religious people and less sophisticated people, I don't want to say religious people are less sophisticated, obviously, because I am one, um, I, less sophisticated people might have just thought, well, things just happen. Uh, things just start to exist. Things just stop existing. It's no big deal. Um, for Parmenides, no. Being does not come from non-being. Being exists. It has um, essence that... Um, it, how can I even express it here? There is a sense in which being needs to be eternal and unmoving and um, unchanging or else it's not being because being can't move anywhere, so to speak. It doesn't come from non-being. It can't go towards non-being. It just has to exist. And so this will actually become important for Plato. It will become important for Aristotle. It will eventually become important for Thomas Aquinas. This idea of absolute being that doesn't move, that is and nothing else, um, yeah, and is, is unchanging. Okay, there's a lot more we could say. Um, again, I read this book at the beginning of the class, is now the end. Um, Anaxagoras, there was something about how, how matter is transformed. There's the seeds of everything in everything else. He said, how does grass, I believe it was Anaxagoras, who said, um, or was it? Yeah, yeah, it was Anaxagoras that said there's seeds of everything and everything else, and that's that explains how grass turns into cow meat, turns into milk. There must be the seeds of cow meat, the seeds of milk within the matter of grass. And he said maybe there's something like 20 elements that um, make up the seeds for everything else. Um, he also said that, um, that there is, uh, again, a noose or a mind. This is different than the logos of, uh, Heraclides. He says there's a noose or a mind that controls all the world. And, uh, Aristotle talks about how he was really excited when he read Anaxagoras talking about a mind behind everything. Uh, but then he was really disappointed when um, he kind of proposed this idea and then he really backed off from it and he went back to a very naturalistic way of explaining things that really um, didn't explain things as well, uh, thought Aristotle, as having some sort of a mind organizing things. I'm going to read the quote here, and I'm, I do apologize. It was Socrates and not um, Aristotle. Um, so I'm going to read the conclusion here of the chapter from, uh, from Copleston on Anaxagoras. We can easily understand then the disappointment of Socrates who, thinking he had come upon an entirely new approach when he discovered Anaxagoras, found my ex extravagant expectations were all dashed to the ground when I went on and found that the man made no use of mind at all. He described no he ascribed no causal power whatsoever to it in the ordering of things, but to airs and ethers and the water and hosts of other strange things. Uh, nevertheless, though he failed to make use of this principle, Anaxagoras must be credited with the introduction into Greek philosophy of a principle possessed of the greatest importance, 
that was to bear splendid fruit in the future. So he had this idea that there's there's a mind behind things. Um, Heraclides had talked about the logos, the word, um, and Exagoras talked about a mind, but he didn't really he didn't really use it. Um, but Socrates really took hold of that and and took it to new levels. Um, just really briefly, uh, we'll talk about the atomists. The only thing I really know about the atomists is that um, that's atomists. It's actually a really short chapter, which might explain why I don't know a whole lot about them. Um, they saw the basic, um, the one, so to speak, as being particles so small that you couldn't see them. So they were actually pretty close to our idea of atoms and molecules, which I'm sure is where the word atom comes from. Um, and so that, you know, was helpful in understanding physics later on. They, um, and uh, But we're going to come back to these guys, Heraclides, Parmenides, Zeno, and uh, Anaximander, uh, and their influence on Socrates and then on Plato in the next podcast.